millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's Torre, host of Torre Show. And you're down with OPP. Pod blessing. Welcome to another episode of OPP, America's number one podcast discovery platform that highlights your favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is legendary music journalist, cultural critic, and television personality, Torre, host of the amazing podcast, Torre Show. On his podcast, Torre talks to successful people about how they became successful and to see what they know that can help you on your journey. He has an incredible roster of guests like Fat Five Freddy, the Wu-Tang Clan, Santa Gold, Dennis Rodman, and many others. In this interview, we learn more about Torre, we get into his career in journalism, his podcaster's picks, and of course, we chat about his dope show, Torre Show. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to Torre. Torre, what's up, man? What's up, Corey? How are you? Dude, I can't complain. Life is good. It feels really good to be here with you right now. That's what's up. So this is, I uh, always say, I-, I like to think of my life as 16-year-old me, because 16-year-old me would be super amazed about like what I'm doing right now, and hanging out with you is one of those things. Really? Dude, so growing up as a kid, I used to want, oh, I actually went to school for journalism. I wanted no to be a journalist. Where? Uh, so I went to Virginia Commonwealth University. Okay. I didn't stick around there long, but that was my major. You grew up in VA? I grew up in Virginia. Okay. And uh, growing up as a kid, I wanted to be a journalist, and I wanted to be a broadcast journalist and be in front of the camera. And I love music. Like, I'm an artist myself. I make music myself. You're a rapper? I'm a rapper, yeah. Okay. And then you were one of the first people that I was like, I want to have his job. Really? I want to have your job. What job did you see me doing that you were like, I want that job? Because you were always the guy on like behind the music or like mm. the, the person who- How old are you? I'm 31. Oh, wow. Okay. So this what that had to be 15. I was like 15 when that was out, 14. Okay. okay. Right? No? Um, I mean, I did a bunch of those. Uh, you know, I mean, th- those behind the musics don't really, they don't register in the memory so much because it wasn't, it's not a job. You know what I mean? Like it's just a, you See, know, I thought of it as a job. No, you don't get <laughs> no, you don't get paid for any of those guests behind the music really? sort of things. I mean, like, yeah, you know, you know, it was just, you know, come and run your mouth for 30 minutes or whatever and you know. Oh, whatever. see, I always thought of it as a, as a job. I'm like, yo, no. I want to I want to do what he does. Like when I was on MSNBC before we had the cycle. Yeah. And you see me there like four or five times a week on different shows, maybe multiple times a day. And they're like, he's a contributor. That means you're getting paid. Okay. That I paid attention to. Okay. <laughs> you know, you guys over here want me to run my mouth about R. Kelly for 30 minutes. Like, okay, I'll give you 30 minutes. But I'm like, you know, I, I was doing that guest stuff to rise in television, to right. be seen. And now, 
I'm really not interested in doing that stuff. I'll do it at MSNBC for my friends, you know, because I really care about MSNBC and I like being there and there's a value in having those conversations in public. Um, But most, I I mean, I, you know, it would take a lot for me to go do some VH1 clip show (laughs) or, and nothing against VH1, but I've done that. Well, you know what I mean? Well, also, too, I think at that time, it was kind of like you were, uh, it put a face to the person who was writing the story, who was Mm. bringing you the story. Mm. So it, it, Kind of what, almost like what what ESPN does for Stephen A. Smith. Sure. Right? Like he was a writer in Philly. But it's not until you get on the medium of television that you're just seen or perceived a little bit differently. Yes. You know, television has uh, a way of making people think that you are smart. or, (laughs) or, Or at least that we should listen to you. Right? Which... It's sort of an old notion. I think in the 70s and maybe the 80s, there was a certain level of gatekeeper who was like, you know, we're only letting people who are smart and we kind of admire on television, you know, somehow Mort Downey Jr. slipped through. But like most of the people on television were admirable in some way. Yeah. Now, any schmo can get on and like run their mouth. And I mean, like Corey Lewandowski. Like, he should not be on cable news. They should not be <laughs> calling him to be on cable news. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. He doesn't have uh, something intelligent to add because he's not an intelligent person. Yeah. He does not have insider knowledge that he's willing to share. And he most likely signed an NDA. So he cannot say anything critical of Trump. So then he is just a partisan hack and in the, and not a good one. Yeah. So why are you even here? But- you know, the, the notion of like, oh, you're on TV, so you must be like, no, no. Well, also, do you think that with the era that we're living in now, a lot of it is not news-based, but reaction-based? So if you're just an entertaining person, you may not have the most insight, but because of the fact you're like, uh, one person, for example, is, um, let's say like LeVar Ball, right? I love LeVar Ball. I love his TV show. I think he's entertaining. But the reason why he would be on ESPN, he's not a sports expert, necessarily well he got a lot of burn in the few months before uh his son went to the nba because he was the father of maybe the best college basketball player of the year right but but i think but do you think it was so that made him a newsmaker so that alone was enough if his son was even the fifth or god 10th best prospect he would never get on but because it seemed like his son was either the first or the second and definitely the most famous college player of that moment. Totally. Uh, it was totally like, you know, sh- and they were doing things differently. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't mind LeVar Ball, but I do see a lot of reactionaryism in, especially in cable news, probably because there's quite often not a lot of time to sit and think about what you're going to say. A lot of right. times things happen and it's like, go talk about it. And, you know, the people who I, really admire at MSNBC and learned a lot from like Melissa Harris Perry, like Joy Reid, um, you know, some of the other folks like Rachel Maddow, um, really thoughtful and really clearly taking time to think through things and get a lot of facts. Um, and I'm not condemning the other hosts, but like a lot of the guests 
don't take that time mm. and they are kind of reactionary and like spitting hot takes rather than like something a little more thoughtful. Right. Cause I feel like now in, you know, I, I'm a big sports fan. The majority of stuff that I watch is reaction commentary more than like, Hey, we're reporting what's happening today. Right. So also with that being said, you're not like, I'm not catching my favorite team is the Washington R words or if we used to call them. The mm, <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. But I'm not catching a lot of the R words stuff because it's not juicy or reaction. Well, the based. one thing I noticed with sports broadcasting is that it's clearly done in conjunction with the NBA, the NFL or MLB. Mm. So they're not, going to show things that make the players or the game look bad. Occasionally a melee may happen and they're going to show it. Right. But like, you know, you can't get away from that. Right. But like if two people start to argue, if the coach starts to argue with one of the players or the referees, they'll cut cut it out. Right. 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 Yeah. They don't show it like a news broadcast where they're actually trying to figure out what's really going on. Right. I mean, even in the NFL, they don't really want you to see the, the uh, uh, 11 on 11. Right. They don't pull because the NFL tells them not to. I don't even really understand why the NFL does not want us to see the entire field and all the players interacting at once, but they, why would you shy away from that? Of course, they should have a drone hanging <laughs> over the field the whole game and show us. Look, this is what because you can't fully understand what happened if you don't see what every player did. But they'll show blips of like here's you know seven or eight players interacting at once, but not like the whole. F- it's it's weird the way you know if a player starts to argue with a ref, they'll like cut away. Like this is news. Like there's value here and these ridiculous in-game interviews of the coach always drive me nuts. The coach clearly is like, I really don't have time for this. <laughs> I definitely don't have the energy for this. I appreciate Greg Popovich, whose whole demeanor is, this is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give you a one-word answer <laughs> and, a, and a face of I'm annoyed, even though, you know, on the second level, he's not annoyed with Michelle Tafoya or whoever's asking the question. He knows, like, you're just doing your thing. He's giving David Aldridge <laughs> a hard time. But it's all in fun after the game. You know, maybe we'll get a beer or maybe we'll, like, you know, slap backs or whatever. <laughs> like, so, you know, everybody knows Pop's a good guy, even though he's Bill. But, you know, Pop, you know, what do you, what do you need to do in the second half? Da, 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 da. Defense. So what do you think is going to make the difference in the end of the game? Defense. Are we done? Like, <laughs> he makes it known. This is absolutely Yes, ridiculous. and he makes a mockery of it in a way that shows this is a ridiculous exercise. But at that rate, why not do in-game interviews with the 12th man? <laughs> he, you know, the guy at the end of the bench who's dressed, but he never gets in the game. But he's usually like a little more popular. Like it's a person. He's got personality, right? He's like fun, <laughs> but he'll never play. Real true fans he, he, still don't know his Instagram. name. He's the Instagram yeah, baller. Yes. Like, right, why can't we write? He's not getting in. Why don't we do a like two minute interview with him? What do you think? How, <laughs> what do you think today? Oh man, Kobe's crushing it tonight, man. Oh my God. Like, Anyway, where did your love for journalism come from? You know, I feel like I remember um, being a child and feeling like if we all go somewhere, we all went to a birthday party, we came back, and then somebody, parent especially, is like, what happened? I'm always the best at explaining what happened and not even, and I can do it even at six, five, not from a me-centric perspective, but like, this is what happened. And this is how it was for the group of us, not just how it appeared to me, 
And I feel like that was sort of the beginning of the discussion of I'm sort of a natural media person. I'm sort of naturally just disposed to explaining and telling you what happened. And the moment that really underlined it for me personally, I was in college in sophomore year and I was in a car. I remember there being eight men and women in the car, like four. I remember the four women were in the front and four guys were in the back. Somehow one of the women asked, what does the male orgasm feel like? And I was like, oh, I can, I can do that. Because the guys were definitely like, I, I don't know how to explain it, or I don't know if I want to explain it. And I was immediately like, oh, I can explain that. And again, not egocentric, but like, I can explain that. Right. I, and I, I will not repeat the explanation for you, but I explained <laughs> it to them in a way that the guys were like, yeah, that's, that's it. And the women were like, wow. It's just the impulse to do media sort of flowed out of that. Um, In college, there was a moment where the uh, Black Student Alliance had rented for free, but rented the this sort of cafeteria sort of on the outskirts of campus for a party, typical stuff. You sign a contract, the party's supposed to go until, say, 10 or 11. The campus police came an hour earlier and said, we have noise complaints, you have to shut it down. It's wrong, but it's not the worst thing that could happen. But it's the sort of thing that mattered tremendously to us. And what we did as a campus community, we wrote 20 separate letters to the school paper, the Emory Wheel. I went to Emory in Atlanta and uh, thought like, well, if we write 20 letters and they usually get like six a week, then they're going to have to print all our letters and we'll dominate the letters section and we'll get our voice out. And the guys uh, and women at the Emory Wheel did the right thing journalistically because we were all kind of making the same point. So they combined our 20 letters into one letter with 20 signatures. But we did not realize at the time that they had made the correct journalistic decision. Now I understand they made the right decision. But at the time, we were that offended us even more. So now, like, what are we going to do? You know, we're all hot and mad. And I said, we need our own newspaper. So I will start our newspaper. So it was called The Fire This Time. It was an eight-page, like, two pages that get folded, um, broadside, like, big sort of newspaper um, with some visuals and editorials talking about, you know, the Black community nationally and locally. Okay. Um and I ran that for about two, two and a half years. And, uh, you know, that was what probably spent more time doing than my major. And, uh, you know, but it was, it was fun. And it was like, this is the beginning of actually doing media, you know. And out of doing that, the Emory Wheel guys were like, well, you know, you want to do something for us? So then I started doing a column the paper but this is the beginning of being in media and it was really valuable because writing editorials on the campus i got a reaction immediately it's like being on broadway as opposed to now i'm in hollywood right and like not that it's higher but like you make a movie and then months later maybe even a year later people see it 
and respond to you, right? Yeah. And it's a very slow process. In Broadway, you do something and the audience responds. They're bored, they're excited, they clap, they laugh, they cry. Like right away you get the response. So you know when I said that, when I used that word, when I used that argument, when I used that phrase, that worked, that didn't work, right? right that right. got a reaction, that didn't. And it was almost like, you know, doing a workshop with like 10,000 people because you would immediately get these responses of like, you know, I really liked your piece. I really liked your argument. Your argument really pissed me off. So there's a really great start in media and starting to see like what gets people's attention and what gets uh, the audience sort of jumping. And that sort of launched me into media. I had... I forget what it was that I wanted, but I wanted something in re, in re, for the paper, and I had I I thought for some reason to call the office of Rolling Stone to try to get that thing that I wanted. While you were in Atlanta, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And I called the office, and somebody talked to me for like fifteen or twenty minutes, and I was like shocked that there was somebody who would spend this much time. And they said, "Well, I'm an intern." And I said, oh, well, how do you become an intern? And I followed the process and I was accepted and I got to be an intern at Rolling Stone for a summer. And I quickly realized this internship thing is constructed to create a free labor force for the magazine. This is not about us becoming part of the magazine. There's no <laughs> thought or plan of that ever happening. So um, I started going to the other interns and like, you know, um, she wants you to file these papers. She wants you to answer this phone for the next half hour. She wants you to copy this stack. And people would always say, yes, sure. People weren't that cynical. You know, they didn't think that somebody would, that another intern would give them his work so that then he could go around to the writers and the editors and be like, so how do you become a writer? Um, and eventually I got fired. Um, All the greats do. From being an intern. <laughs> yes, from being an intern. Like I think they fired like two interns in like the history of the intern program. <laughs> but I had made a friend and uh, he uh, and he gave me a record review assignment. And I did that. Do you, do you remember the album? It was, I, I cannot remember. It was either Naughty by Nature's second album or Belle Biv DeVoe's second album. Okay. And I reviewed both of them. I just can't remember which was first. Um, one of those was first and the other was second. Um, and that started my whole thing with them. You're a journalism legend. I think there's two people who've had an impact on made me want to become a journalist because that's what my first career path was. It's funny how life goes full circle. It was you and Katie Couric. Uh, <laughs> real talk those are the two people you know katie cork is actually really interesting because i remember watching her on today's show yeah when i was starting at cnn and there was a moment where there was a mistake she read something wrong or something came off wrong and she very cutely and quickly kind of played it off and then went right back to the thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, because that seemed more real and honest and like a mistake was made. Like this is not a bunch of robots. Um, 
But it was very liberating for me because at that point I was on CNN like three to four mornings a week and trying to figure out like, how do I function in this space? Yeah. And it was like, oh, look at her. You can make a mistake and make a great moment out of it or make a better moment out of it. You know, like because you made a mistake doesn't have to be a mistake. Like, so then it's like mistakes, if you play it right, are not actually mistakes. So then you're completely liberated. I can do whatever I want in this televised space because if I should make a mistake, if I handle it right, it's all good. So that was incredibly, having that moment and that realization was incredibly incredibly liberating as a young television uh, performer. As a, as a rapper, I always say that my rappers aren't rappers that I love. They're my superheroes because there's something about them that I really want to be. Like yeah. everyone has their certain X-Man. Yeah. Um, they're like, that's my favorite. I want to be Wolverine because of some yeah. type of trait that he has. Yeah. Um, but that my favorite journalists have the same. Who are your guys? Your rappers? Oh, well, I think my superhero, I have about three. Okay. Um, I would say definitely Jay. Uh-huh, Jay-Z, uh, because yeah. Jay taps into the entrepreneurship side okay. of who I am as a person. Okay. Um, but I would say for me, Kanye. Okay. And Kanye, especially early Kanye when you're growing up, because of uh uh he was the first suburban mm-hmm. black guy that I saw that was like just like me. Like, I wore polo. First suburban black guy you saw. That I saw who right. rapped. Right. Who rapped. Because you're mad young. Because there's a whole suburban community <laughs> before that. Well, no, I mean, like, I remember um, getting the De La Soul cassette. Okay, yes, yes. When they first came out. Yes. And uh, truth be told, I didn't get it right away. I was not digging it. And when I got to the song about the frogs, I took the tape out and I threw it in the back. <laughs> what is this fucking garbage? And then, like, a couple, like, a month later, Potholes in My Lawn came out as okay. a single. And I was like, that shit is hot. And I'm like, like going through the back of my Honda Prelude. Where the fuck is that cassette? Honda Prelude. Yes. And then I started vibing on the tape. And they really helped me feel like part of the hip hop community. Because it was definitely like, got hard guys from the hood of New York do this. I'm a suburban kid in Boston. I love this, but I'm an outsider here. And when I got to, when I discovered De La Soul, or when they emerged, because I mean, like, I, I lived this. Yeah. So it wasn't like I went back and discovered them. Like, when they came out, I went and bought the tape. And uh, it definitely was like, oh, I am part of this. Like, they're like me. They're like my brothers. Right. They're like, they're suburban. They're not hard. I'm suburban. I'm not hard. Like, we're witty. Like, we like funny stuff that, you know, the niggas from the hood are like, that's whack. Like, well, I like it. Yeah. Like, like, oh, okay. And like, you know, them, that they really made a big difference. I brought that up because. Wait, who's your third? You said Kanye, Jay, and. Oh, probably Biggie. Okay. Because Biggie was just smooth with the ladies, man. <laughs> Biggie was just mad smooth. Black okay. and ugly as ever. Yes. However. However. Um, but I, down to the, the socks. socks. I brought that up because as a journalist, like you, uh, Katie Kirk was a big inspiration on me, but she kind of reminds me of like the Jennifer Aniston of journalism. Sure. Right? Like the girl next door who's going to ask you that tough question. Sure. But what would you say is your journalistic style? Like, what, what do you... Uh, I like it to be very natural. I want you to almost forget that I'm a journalist. I don't want to pretend that I'm not. So like when I would go out for Rolling Stone, 
I take notes openly right in front of them. I don't want to pretend that I'm not a journalist. But beyond that, I'm trying to be very smooth and just fit in with the group. And like, you know, we're hanging out, like drinking. I'll drink with y'all. We smoking. I'm smoking with y'all. There was a story (laughs) where um, I was with uh, the Fugees and Clef and Praz were, had like a video in like a day or two. So at the top of every hour, they would get down on the ground wherever they were and do like 20 or 30 push-ups or whatever because they're trying to bulk up for the video. Doing the push-ups with them. Mm-hmm. You know, like I did a story with on Jennifer Capriotti for Vogue once. Um, it didn't run, but I was in my anthology. But um, uh, she's running sprints. I'm running sprints with her. Like I'm here to like hang out. I remember once I did a television interview with Cornell West at Princeton. And he's back at Princeton. This was for MTV2. And, you know, I already knew him because I'd done a story on him before. So there wasn't the nice to meet you thing. We are we just, I just sat down and just started talking, right? And he'd done The Matrix. So I was really vibing on like, you know, so how was that? And blah, blah, blah. And they never said go. I just started talking. Yeah. And like eight minutes in, he was like, when are we starting? And I'm like, we started eight minutes ago. <laughs> like, <laughs> And, you know, I never want to fool somebody and have them say like, well, I didn't realize that we were starting then. So I wouldn't have said that if I knew we were on the record. I don't want that. Yeah. But I want you to feel very natural and chill and conversational. You know, like, like I'll tell journalists like, if your girl or your boy came over and was like, yo, she or he dumped me, what would you do? You would have a conversation with them. What happened? What did they say? Like, well, what did they mean? Well, what was the tone when they said that? Mm. You know, and, and, you know, have they ever said anything like that that's before? A good, that's a good question. Right. And this, <laughs> and this would be an interview. You're interviewing your friend, but in a very natural way. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, like I kind of have my question clusters sort of memorized so that I can jump around. I mean, I have to I have to be jumping around. I can't plan the interview out a week in advance. Like, you know, you mentioned your mother three times in the last interview, something saying he wants that last question, something saying he wants to talk about his mom. So let's but let's roll with that. Jump to the end right. and talk about your mom or yeah. whatever. Um I wanted to be loose and conversational and natural and easy dope so it's hard to say quick break when we get back we're going to get into your podcast teresha hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com we're back so Ray, how did you first discover podcasting my first it's an interesting story my first introduction to podcasting Several years ago, I became aware that there was a thing called podcasting. 
but it was mostly, to my understanding, improvised conversations that comedians were having with various people and like, it's a fucking mess. <laughs> the fuck is this? This is whack. Around that time, uh, MSNBC was giving us all the hosts a car to go to work and back home at the end of the day. Oh, wow. And then they said, no more. So I said, okay, I'm going to city bike to and from work because I like city biking and I like, you know, the feeling of like I'm working a little on the cardio and I'm working a little on my legs. I'm getting there and I hate the subway, especially in the morning. And like, I was always a big music head. I would, you know, when I was younger, I would never leave home without my Walkman and my big headphones. Right now we're in the era of small headphones, but immediately it was like listening to music while I'm riding a bike through New York City does not work. Because the music fills your ear. So if somebody is coming close to hitting you, you will not hear yeah, them. Exactly, exactly. You won't hear them honking yeah. with Lil Wayne talking about, you know, <laughs> ah, where the one go? Like, you know. So I got to listen to podcasts, you know, because this is this music is not working. Um, Podcast saves lives, bro. No doubt. <laughs> I don't even know what or who was the guide. But like, I found this American Life and Radio Lab very early into this delve into what is this world and was like, oh, this is amazing. These are fantastic shows. And I started branching out from there and, you know, getting into other shows. And this is before Serial, um, like a good year, year and a half, two years before Serial. So when Serial came out, I was like, you guys are late. Like all the people who joined the podcast world because of that, it's like you guys are late. This, yeah, this shit is fun. Um, yeah, I remember riding over the Manhattan Bridge, listening to you know Radio Lab talk about the early days of American football. You know, with the American Indians. That you know that incredible episode and was yeah. like, this forum is amazing. And like a little while after listening to it a lot, I was like. I could do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, with anything that I get into, I'm like, I could do that. Yeah. What, what inspired you to start your own podcast? Well, you know, the inspiration for starting my own podcast was partly joblessness, right? After the, <laughs> after the MSNBC thing ended, I was sitting there at a coffee shop going, what the fuck am I going to do now? And a podcast was one of the ideas that came to me about something that I can do. And there were a couple of concepts that I tried that didn't go anywhere. Um, but when I started to say, like, I'm going to interview successful Black people, it was like, oh, well, I can do that. And I could make that work. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just started calling people and trying to get people to do the show. Who was your first guest? You've had an amazing lineup on your show. So please. Thank you. I believe the first guest was Troy Carter. Okay. Pretty sure he was the first guest. And Was he at Spotify at the time? No, this is before Spotify. He had an office in LA. Um, it was mainly focused on investing at that point. Okay. Because he had a, there was a wall of all the companies that he was in. And it was like Uber, yeah. Lyft, Airbnb. He's in everything yeah. hot. It was like 50 different logos. And like- He was on, uh, I believe, an episode of How I Built This With Guy Ross. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, like, yeah, he was great. He was great. 
how is it having this medium? You know, you come from the very traditional, you know, um, way of media from back in the day. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, how is this medium different? It's entrepreneurial. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. You know, there's tons of freedom and I'm the guy. Um, you know, prior to this, there's a huge structure, you know, above you and underneath you, all around you. You know, the people who I want to interview, I have to negotiate with an editor or a producer of who we're going to talk to. They may say no, and their no is final. Um, you know, there's an editing process that you may or may not be a part of. I mean, like, I had an interview show where we interviewed Al Green, right? The yeah, Reverend legend, Al Green. Legend. There's a famous story about how Al Green got hot grits thrown on him mm -hmm. by a woman he was dating. And uh, that made him go back to the church and gospel music and say, this secular thing is not working. Mm -hmm. The actual story of that is like 15 minutes long. It's far more in-depth and up-and-down roller coastery than we have actually known in the real Because I've heard that story about getting grits thrown on him for years, but there's way more to the story than that. I can't even remember the whole story. And I was like, yo, that was gold. And they were like, yo, we're not using that. I'm like, why not? Like, because that would run, have to run through like three breaks. It's too long. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, that's the goal. Not like, oh yeah, I made my new album, blah, blah, blah. Like, but the producers are in charge. They right. overruled me. Um, in this thing, it's you. It's you. You're all alone. You get the money, but you have to promote the thing. You have to find the guests. And I have a nice team that works with me and helps me out. And the team has been growing steadily as I've been going along. But most of the guests I've booked, you know, I do the promotion, you know, I do blah, 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 blah. So that's been a big change. But the freedom that you get from it is really extraordinary. All of my guests on both of my shows are super, super special to me. Uh, but what guests on Tori show. Oh, Jesus. You want me to play favorites and talk not, about not, which not, guests I like the no, most? No, 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 no. Um, but which guest surprised you? Which guest surprised me? And why? Let's see. I mean, you know, Tiffany Haddish was fantastic. And the depth and clarity of her positive self-talk is really powerful. Hmm. You know, because she's like, I wake up every morning and look in the mirror, and I'm like, you are good enough, you know, you're smart enough, you know, you can handle this, you can do this, you know, and like, you know, she's like, you know, look deep into like, you know, the, the center of your eyes and be like, you know, you know, lungs, you're doing a good job, liver, you're doing a good job, heart, you're doing a good, you know, and really like building herself up with these positive messages. And I didn't, I didn't fully expect her to say that. Um, there's an interesting moment that surprised me with En Vogue because now it's the three-woman lineup, mm -hmm. right? And two of them are the original En Vogue women, but the other one is new-ish. She's been rolling with them for like a decade plus, but, you know, those who were like, 
rocking with them in the 90s is like she's the new chick so i was asking them about uh that first single um hold on and how they made it you know because such a it's such an incredible performance just a musical performance and i remember i asked the other one i apologize not remembering her name right now i said well where were you when they were doing that and i really didn't know it wasn't a leading question i really didn't know and she was like oh well i was actually a fan of in vogue then and i saw them in concert in chicago i'm like oh how old were you She's like, well, I was 13. And they looked at her like, oh, what? <laughs> and it was like, they didn't know how old she was. They were not like prepared for her to say like, you were a child coming to see us in concert? Like when we were hot? Like, oh my God. That was a that was an interesting moment. I really enjoyed your uh, interview with Diddy. Thank there, you. There was a, uh, a powerful quote. I actually put it on my story today from that interview where he says, um, you know, I, I'm fearless because I have fear. Right. Oh, that was a very powerful quote about about him because he is a very uh, he's very someone I wouldn't associate with fear. Right. You know, me neither. You know, my friend Reggie Hudlin actually surprised me because um, we've been really close for ten years. No, wait, no, no. Before we had children. So, I mean, 14 years or something like that, yeah. 15 years of being close with him. But I never was like, how come you don't make movies now? Like, you used to direct movies and you don't now. Like, I'd tease him in like little teeny weeny ways, but I never straight up asked him like, so how come you're not directing movies anymore, right? And then he gets the Django Unchained producer job and he's back hot in Hollywood <laughs> and he gets to direct Marshall, right? So I go to interview him at his house and like an hour and a half in, I didn't even really ask the question, but he started talking about being in movie jail. You know what that means? No. Like if you're a movie maker, especially a director or a big star, you're only as good as your last picture. So if your last picture flops, you're a flop, mm. right? And if you have, like two flops, you kind of end up in movie jail, which means you can't get a budget because everybody's like, yeah, "You're cold right you're now. You're cold. Yeah. You're you don't know what to you don't know what to do to make a hit. You're good, so you're in movie jail. You cannot get a budget to do a film. So I mean, like, there's people out there who are like talented enough, but like the studios will not give them a budget to do a big film. Wow, you know. So uh, it was kind of like. You were in movie jail? Like, yeah, I was for a long time. And then and it was great because it was like, well, how did you get out of it? And he talked very eloquently and, and, and intelligently about how he worked his way out of that. And I think the working way out of that was really valuable for the audience. But I, I did not realize that he was in movie jail. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> so that's pretty crazy that I didn't expect him to say that. You know, you think you're like really close to somebody for a long time. And then it's like, there's still like a lot of shit about you. I don't know. <laughs> uh, lastly, on this point uh, with technology now and this entrepreneurship aspect of podcasting, you know, I don't come from a traditional uh, journalism um, background, but I'm interviewing you right now. Like, what is your take on 
the, the the barrier to entry for journalism? I don't even know because I'm not pushing those buttons. I'm not trying to get in. I mean, I couldn't even tell you. I know it's harder. Uh, there was a moment a few years ago when it was probably easier than it is even now. I mean, there's been a gigantic contraction, right? But there are fewer magazines right. than when I was doing it in the 90s. And most of those magazines are either smaller or they come out less often, right? So everybody's feature well is smaller. So there's fewer features to go around, right? If you're a magazine writer, you've got to be doing features because that's where you start to get actual checks. If you're doing short pieces like 500 or 1,000 words, you're not making any money. You do a story that's 3,000 to 5,000 words, you can make some actual money. I didn't know that was even like a thing like that. What? Like the whole 2,000, 3,000 words. Well, word. quite often you're going to get paid by the word. Okay. Right. In writing, in magazine journalism. Okay. So if you do a 500 word story, the magazine rate is somewhere around $1.50 to $2.250 a word, depending on what magazine you're okay. at and your relationship with them. The web rate is like 50 cents a word, really. So yeah, if you write a 500 word story, you're probably going to get around $1,000, right? If you write a three or 4,000 word story, you get a nice check. Get paid. Right. So that, you know, if there's not, enough long stories, long assignments to go around, then it becomes harder for the entire group to eat. Right. Um, I remember before MSNBC came around, I was really pressing to get back into magazines. And I remember I went to Playboy magazine with like six really precise defined specific ideas for like good stories. Like here's the layout, here's the the layout of the story. Here's how I'm going to do it. And, and I'm like, you know, I really want to get in with them because they pay pretty good. Right. So, yeah. um, and I went to lunch with the editor. I mean, I'm doing like the whole thing, like the whole full core press, not just like call them like, yo, I want to do some work and like, yes or no. But like, I'm taking you to lunch. Recording. I mean, he probably paid, but still, I'm motivated. <laughs> like, let's go to lunch. And here's a bunch of great ideas. And if, you know, like, I'm showing you all this initiative and all, like, if you don't like all these ideas, then I'm just not on the right purview. But the energy and the name brand, you should give me something. Like, even if you're like, none of those, but I'm going to give you something. This is the magazine industry that I'm used to. I got nothing out of that. I mean, I made a personally made like a major play for like at least give me one assignment, if not several, mm. and I got zero, and it just left me afraid for the others because I'm like I have other things that I can do right that I'll go chase. But if you want to be in magazines or you want to be in culture writing in traditional media, I mean, and there's no money to be made online at all, but like. How would you do it? I mean, like, because I have a name, so I can live. I can get that meaning. You can't even get that meaning. You don't have a name. Right. And, like, how do you live? Like, you know, I. so I feel really bad. I mean, like, if people came to me now and said they want to write about this stuff in media, you know, I'd be like, first, let's talk about why and see if I can dissuade you from doing this. Because I really only want the people who are dying to do this to do this. Because if you can see another path, you should go that way because there's not that much money to be made in this path now. Yeah. So 
you know, stick with this if you need this in your soul. But if you can envision yourself doing something else, <laughs> please. And so, um, you know, I probably should have told you this uh, beforehand. This is a segment that I have on every show of OPP. It's called My Podcaster's Picks, uh, where I ask, you know, my favorite podcasters to give me their three top shows that they like and describe them to me. Um. 99% Invisible is incredible. Okay. Roman Mars's voice is it, perhaps the best voice in podcasting. 99% Invisible is a short show about designs. The episodes will be five to 15 minutes long and they'll be like, you know, on the doorknob or the lawn or the construction of the Atlanta airport or I mean like design as like most broadly understood. Okay. Um, I'm going to name a bunch of podcasts, so I'm not going to be able to define all of them because they <laughs> can, um, I mean, I love broken record Malcolm Gladwell's new show. I, yeah, it's a great show. Yes. I listened to the Rick Rubin episode and yes. the uh, now Rogers interview and his previous podcast was fantastic as well. Yeah. Um, I just, I just in the last like two days got into citations needed. It's media and political critique from the left, but they are so left. They are just critical of the left. Um, The Combat Jack show is one of the great shows. Um, Jack's a great man and he's a fantastic interviewer. And uh, his show Mogul was fantastic. I interviewed Eric Eddings uh, who was the producer oh, wow. of of that show. I like Ear Hustle. Um, Ear Hustle is uh, uh, one, a man who's long-term incarcerated and a woman who's not um, incarcerated talking about, very specifically, about what it is to be incarcerated. So it's really interesting. Um, the first season of Invisibilia Okay. was one of the greatest seasons in podcasting history. They were just crushing it every episode. Invisibilia is a woman who was a producer at Radiolab and a woman who was a producer at This American Life. And they both had great voices and they would tell these stories. And it was in the vein of Radiolab and This American Life it was similar to them, but it was more emotional and it was more digging into their feelings and the feelings of the guests and stuff. And at the end of every episode, they'd be like, let's have a dance party. The audience loves this <laughs> and they love doing it. But, and it was so them and it was so on. But, the, but before you even get to that, they were extraordinary. Um, Give me one more. The Shadows. Tell me about The Shadows. The Shadows is a great show out of Canada made by a woman who is a radio maker. So it's like a five episode, it's kind of like a radio play. It's very edited and there's a lot of use of sound in really interesting ways. She's looking for a boyfriend and she's trying to make it in puppetry. And those two things dovetail, not in any sexual way, but like (laughs) she's really trying to get into puppetry and she starts to really like this guy who's really high up in the space and blah, blah, blah. And um, all right, I'll give you one more. Give me one more. Well, two more. Okay. You Had Me at Black is a great show where they get uh, black people telling stories. So you could go on there and be like, so, you know, what happened was 
I was waiting for Pookie at the bus stop. Nigga never came. So I had to walk to the party. And when I got there, I was like, where's Pookie? I'm going to kick his ass. And it's not always funny. It's usually funny, but sometimes it's not. And the, that show is dope. Um, there's another show that I found. It's called Dexter Guff is Smarter Than You and You Can Be Too. You heard of it? About no. This, this is um, an improv comedian who was sort of making fun of the Tim Ferriss, Tony Robbins sort of guru, I know everything, I can help change your life sort of thing. Okay. And but it was it, it so he would improv these episodes, but there was a narrative to it because it was like he was trying to accomplish something and there was this woman that he really liked. So listened to it, loved it, played it for my kids. They loved it. And then we all listened to it again. Because <laughs> it's really, really funny. Well, Dexter Guff's awesome. I'm definitely going to check it out. And, and Tori, lastly, why do you podcast? Look, you know, I've been doing these sort of interviews with one-on-one interviews with celebrities for a very long time. That was at the core of what I did at Rolling Stone. It was at the core of what I did at BET. Um to a certain, to lesser extent at, MT, at MSNBC because I was sharing, but I did a show similar to this at MTV too, um, you know, for other magazine work. And just doing a long form interview with somebody is something that I very, feel very comfortable at and uh, I feel like I'm very good at. And I'm like, I love doing this. And instead of doing it for somebody else, now I'm doing it for myself. Yeah. And instead of letting somebody else be in control of this situation and me and my work, I'm in control of it. And I like, when I sit down on the set and there's some great guests and I'm like, I built this. And that's to take nothing away from all the people, you know, Chris Colbert and Tyrese and all the people who have helped me work in the show and get here to this point. I think we're at episode 56 or something, but like, instead of fitting into an institution and creating a show as part of that, I have created my own institution and it's small, but I made it right. And I'm not getting paid hourly. I'm getting paid to have created this moment. And I find that very exciting. And just the, the freedom that you get, um, you know, we had Lil Yachty and we're going to have Sonia Sanchez. And then it's funny. I just got this book. So, uh, FSG sent me this book. We know you like tennis, so maybe you'll like this book. So it's about the year, the 2017 tennis season, right? And I start reading it because I didn't really expect much, although the writer's from the Paris Review. So I thought, oh, well, maybe, maybe. So reading it, oh, it's extraordinary, right? And his analysis of tennis and how the aggressive baseliner has taken over from the all-court player like Federer. Um, you know, when you saw in 2008 was really the last year that the all-quarter was really in charge because after that, Nadal won. And ever since then, it's really been Nadal and Djokovic and Murray just taking nothing away from Federer. But, and just a really deep, thoughtful um, analysis of the top of tennis and how the game that they were playing had shifted at this point and how it shifted. And that's like, the fifth paragraph of the thing, right? And I'm like, this is dope. I love this. And I was digging it so much that I was like, I'm going to Instagram 
about and just tell all my little Instagram peeps like I'm reading this book and if you like tennis you'll like it too. And so then of course it's like well you know I gotta at the author so let you know so I went to his Instagram page to figure out what his name was and there's the picture he's black and I'm like I had no expectation that Ricardo Rowan Phillips was gonna be black. <laughs> Right? Yeah. But now I'm like, oh, I love this book. I would love to give a black author, uh, you know, a bump, you know, and like. A a platform. Yeah. Why not have him on? Like, you love tennis and you want. And like, I always grew up like, you know, you, you get into a show and you listen to it over time. And the host is 95% of the time staying in that that middle lane where all the audience is into what he's talking about or what she's talking about. Especially something I see with men hosts more than women. Um, but every once in a while, he'll go into his pet issue. He's into flying, so he'll have some aviator come on. And they'll geek out about aviation <laughs> or cereal or cartoons or whatever, anime, whatever. And most of the audience is like, what is happening here? But that is his pet love. So, you know, we on the show- We got to ride with him. We got to indulge that. (laughs) We got to indulge it. Like, I'm a serious tennis player. I play every day. It's a big part of my life. You know, I mean, most of the time when I'm home, tennis channel is on. So, like, why not? I mean, like, I had to endure some host talking about aviation that I didn't care about. Um, We're going to talk about tennis with Ricardo Rowan Phillips. And, like- I'm going to love that episode. A lot of the audience may be like, this is boring. But, you know, Tim Ferriss talked about that early on, that every episode is not for every listener. You know, like he'll do, you know, an episode about meditation and then one about business and then one about, you know, his science and the four-hour four body stuff. And he's like, you know, every episode doesn't have to be for every person. And like, you know, if most of the audience like two out of the three, then you're good. You know, and there's definitely episodes that I didn't listen to that I skip over when he's like talking to the scientist who made creatine about I'm like, I'm so bored. (laughs) You know, but the episode where the woman was talking about the importance of meditation, um, you know, and the importance of gratitude. I listened to that like twice. Like that was amazing. Super important. So, I mean, you know, the audience may be a little bit lower. For, the, for this episode, because it's not a bold-faced name, and we're going to super geek out about tennis, but I'm going to love it, and he's going to enjoy it, and some people will like it, and next week there will be another episode that has nothing to do with tennis, and here we go. Well, so, so because I have the freedom, and I don't have to, and I kind of was like, you could do it if you want to. Like, you don't have to ask anybody. Like, right. just fucking do it. And like, would I have been able to get that guy on any of my other shows? Maybe on MSNBC, maybe. Well, also, too, just having the freedom that you have now on your own platform, it's could be kind of difficult to go back to being kind of restrained a little bit when you have so much freedom doing. I mean, I mean, it'd be nice to have a big audience. <laughs> you know. I mean, I mean, like we have a nice audience here, right, in podcast land. But, you know, I mean, like. You know, I mean, that was, a, I mean, you know, there, there, there's reasons why you make the trade-off, you know. Well, this is, this is just the beginnings of what podcasting is going to be. You think that we can get up to television numbers? I know, sir. 
we're not podcasting like getting to seven hundred thousand a day. We gonna, we gonna, a day. We gonna, we gonna talk after this. Interview. A day, son. A day. We gonna talk. All right. Well, Torrey, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast, All right, yes, man. I'm, a, yes, I'm yes. a huge fan. Thank you for being an inspiration to me. I appreciate you and Katie Couric. <laughs> Straight up. I love that. Me and Katie Couric. <laughs> I really appreciate you, man. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. No doubt. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of OPP. And to our special guest, Torrey. I'll have the links to the Torrey show provided for you in the description of this episode. This episode is mixed by Mark Bird. This episode was edited by Bradley Naiman. And before we get out of here, be sure to check out my other show, Silent Giants. Silent Giants highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. And I'll be sure to provide you with the links in the description of this episode. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pop bless. Till next time. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.